1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Today, I think every one of our listeners is going to be really excited, probably a little surprised whenever I introduce our guest today, but he's a good friend of mine. He brings an incredible amount of knowledge about waterfowl ecology and waterfowl science. And that guest today is Dr. Chris Nicolai, waterfowl scientist for Delta Waterfowl. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, good morning, Mike. Uh, Thanks a lot for the invite. This is... uh Pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, hopefully people haven't fallen out of their chair by us, by the realization that we have a Delta waterfowl, a waterfowl scientist here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Little, uh, what, what most people probably don't appreciate, uh, the, the casual uh, person out there, is that Ducks Unlimited and Delta waterfowl collaborate way more than people realize on science and research. We've talked at length with some of our previous guests on the role that Delta Waterfowl has played historically in helping to train the waterfowl scientists that are all across North America. Um, the, I came through Delta Waterfowl as a summer field technician. So many other Ducks Unlimited biologists have, scientists have as well. I think you did too, right, Chris? You you kind of cut your teeth in the early years as a Delta summer field technician somewhere along the way, right?
2: Yeah, No, I'd say it's probably about my fourth uh, field job was uh, back in 96. I was a technician for several people that went on to work for the service and you know DU and all kinds of different organizations.
1: Yeah, and 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 that continues. Delta waterfowl continues to play a role in the science that that helps guide the management and conservation of waterfowl and, and wetlands and DU and Delta support similar projects, research projects, support some of the same projects, uh, even to this day we have historically. And so on the, the kind of science and research side of things, we work more closely together than, than what I think a lot of people realize. So this conversation, especially given the friendship that you and I have, the the professional relationship that we have, is pretty exciting because we're able to talk about that and, and share this and, and kind of share this joint interest in collecting reliable information through all the science that we do that does guide our continental conservation. So I appreciate you taking the time to join us here and share your expertise on us on a topic that I know is going to be super interesting to our listeners. It is it's going to cover a range of of particular items, but generally stated, we're going to be talking about marking of waterfowl and how we use that individual, the, the marking of individual birds, whether it be bands, whether it be neck collars, transmitters, all the different marking technologies, what they are, how we use them, how they've evolved through the years, and what kind of information we get from them, and why they are they are so important, and of course hunters play a crucial role in in providing the data that we get from some of those markers, and we're going to talk about that with you because you, Chris, are one of the leading experts on all of those different marking technologies and techniques uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. So I want to start this episode with giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience personal background, as well as your professional background, how you, uh, where you were at each step along the way in your career to now wind up as a waterfowl scientist for Delta Waterfowl. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris. Yeah,
2: no, that sounds good. Um, I'll try to keep it short too. I know you can get this topic going a long ways, but uh, yeah, I grew up in Minnesota, started uh, going to school, started hunting when I was a kid. My family was all into hunting and everything. I think I was totally addicted to waterfowl by the time I was eight. And um, yeah, I went to college, had no clue that uh, you could be a waterfowl or any type of wildlife biologist as a career. And luckily, uh, in the first couple of weeks, I met uh, some famous wolf biologists where I was living and learned that you could do this, ended up walking by a class full of duck wings and was like, whoa, what's that? And changed my degree the next day, figured I'd get a two-year degree. And uh, yeah, kept going to school forever, ended up going to Northwest Minnesota in Bemidji, Met uh, the research guys there, worked for them for four years. Um, they got tired of me and helped hook me up to go to Alaska. So I went up to Alaska, $3 a day, round tr- a free round-trip ticket in my pocket, and I was baited to go see a spectacled eider, which I had no clue I could ever go do that. And next thing you know, I think, uh, yeah, I got up there, started working on a master's project two years later on nesting Black Brant at University of Alaska Fairbanks, finished up there. And my advisor, same guy, ended up taking a job in University of Nevada, Reno, went down to the godforsaken Intermountain West Desert, which I never thought I'd go to, griped about it every 15 minutes for the first year, and ended up living there for 18 years and and really fell in love with the area. So, uh, yeah, finished my Ph.D. up on nesting Brant in about 2010, Instantly started working with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service as the regional game bird biologist and stuck in that job till I came here in late 2019. Um, but, you know, the service job changed quite a bit. Started working on waterfowl. Uh, still had my leg in it throughout it, but uh, that region of of the service changed abruptly to uh, focusing on renewable energy and impacts on eagles. And, you know, it was fun and all that, but, uh, you know, my passion was with waterfowl, so when this job opened up in late '19, I jumped at it, and here we are, uh, closer to home. Grandkids get to see, or my kids get to see their grandparents a bunch more, and we get to see a little bit more winter. So, yeah, really happy move here.
1: Well, that's good. I'm happy for you that you landed at that uh, in that position. I know, I know, waterfowl has been and always will be your passion, and to you know, just kind of personally to be able to see you land in the position that you're in now. I was I was thankful, I was happy for you and I think it's pretty cool that we get to work together on a few projects and uh, it's cool to be able to talk to you about some of the things that we're going to discuss here. I have reflected occasionally, Chris, on your and my sort of paths, career paths. I consider you a population ecologist. Most of the research that you have done and you continue to be involved in is more on sort of the demographic side of waterfowl population management uh, contrast that with sort of my path and paths of many other people uh, across the the country. We've kind of gravitated through the research and some of our other interest in some of the habitat ecology, habitat management, and perhaps more specifically in my case on the wintering ground, uh, the wintering and, and migration ecology of these birds. And so well, that's another sort of interesting aspect, a unique aspect, pretty cool aspect, I guess, would be a way of stating of stating the 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 type of Work that you and I have done, how it complements one another, and it illustrates the importance of that professional expertise across all different aspects of the annual cycle of these birds and the habitat requirements and harvest management uh, implications of all that stuff. So, uh, it's pretty cool in in that regard, and it's great to have you here talking about uh, about this particular this particular aspect of a lot of the science that we uh, that we as a community do. You are, and we could talk for. Hours about the experiences that you've had capturing all different species of waterfowl, uh, banding many different species of waterfowl. Actually, let me take a pause here and say, I think you were telling me not too long ago that you have now banded every species of waterfowl in North America. Is that right? Save maybe the Mexican duck?
2: Nope, no, I got the Mexican Did you? duck too. Okay. Uh, I got the first actually the first sighting of a Mexican duck in Nevada and it was in my duck trap and it actually got banded as well. So yeah, I was covered with that recent split. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I haven't banded all of them, but I've caught everybody and uh, could have banded a couple of them. You know, sometimes you just don't want to band a bird. You know, it's probably the only one banded in a decade. What's the point? Or, you know, we were doing a project that we didn't even think about bands and didn't have it. But yeah, the last one I needed to do is. Was with you, what was that, about three years ago now, down at maybe four years yeah, ago, down more like at Rockefeller? Four years ago, yeah. And, yeah, the, the Wiley uh, model duck. So, yeah.
1: Now, people in Florida would tell you that you have to travel to their state to capture and ban the Florida model duck.
2: Oh, yeah. But then the Eider guys could get me too. And, uh, I'd have to go grab three more North American (laughs) eiders as well.
1: (laughs) So you'll have to start doing some sort of subspecies list, although it's not even really, the monoduck's not officially recognized as a subspecies anymore, but that's a topic for another day. Let's not get too far down that road. (laughs) Let's transition here, Chris, to what we want to talk on this episode about, and I can just go ahead and tell our listeners that we're going to, we're going to have to break this into a couple of different episodes because there's a lot to cover here, a lot of exciting material, and uh, we may do a separate episode just on some of your travels and exploit some of your favorite stories, favorite locations that you visited to capture and band waterfowl, uh, because that's one of the things that that I have not done. So I enjoy hearing the stories that you that you tell the remote locations you've been. So if we have time, whether it be today or some other uh, some other day, we'll try to get you on to talk about that just from a General experience uh, standpoint of of what waterfowl professionals um, do, where they go, and some of the things that they that they see and participate in. So on this episode, though, we're going to start the conversation about how we use different types of individual markers and different types of markers that we apply to individual birds to study various things related to the ecology of these birds and. Like we do on many of these, these, I guess, topics, Chris, I want to reflect a bit from a historical perspective or big picture perspective. And when we talk about collecting data on waterfowl, their use of habitats, their demographics, their behaviors, there's a lot of different ways that we can do that before some of the modern technologies came along, we were doing that just based on observations of birds in the field, what they were doing, Uh, not necessarily individual birds, because if you don't have the the bird marked, you can't track an individual, but just general observations of flocks of birds, associations with different habitats. And those types of projects still have a role today in some sense, but... Talk about that, I guess, Chris, from a research perspective, data collection perspective. When we think about those different ways of collecting data, what do we what do we get from individual marking technologies and methods that we didn't get from, let's say, some of those older, uh, some of the techniques that have been around for a longer period of time where we're just looking at groups of birds and not necessarily identifying the individuals?
2: You know, one of the most common things we try to get out of out of all wildlife populations. The most basic, most common one of all is how many are there? You know, and there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, you know, just driving up, driving levees and, you know, counting how many ducks are in unit A and unit 1B and stuff like that. But, um, you know, and we all know that that's about the, the most basic way to count birds. And, you know, it makes you wonder, okay, you went to 1A on November 1st and he counted 10,000 birds. You go back to Unit 1A on the 15th of November, and he counted the same number of birds. Now, to me, it's like, well, okay, so was that 10,000 birds that didn't move, or is it 10,000 birds that were at the first sampling unit, and then they all left and were totally replaced by 10,000 more birds, and we actually had 20,000 birds use Unit 1A. And, uh, you know, it really gets you to scratch your head, you know, and that's where it's fun, you know, where guys like you and I can talk together, where you have a lot of experience with the energetics on wintering areas, where I've got experience, you know, with the demographics, mostly in northern or western systems, you know, and a little bit of, um, you know, the the caloric availability of food, you know, for Arctic plant species, you know, for, for the geese and stuff like that. So that's where it's really fun to combine this stuff. It's like, okay, well, how could we actually figure out, you know, how many birds are consuming those calories that you guys can identify, you know, on wintering or staging areas and stuff. So, yeah, that common question of just how many are there. You know, we use it as a denominator or a numerator depending on uh, the question of, you know, how many how many birds are consuming these resources. So, you know, the pickier you get, the kind of question that you're asking sometimes requires a more accurate number of birds and um you know then it all gets into what kind of birds are they and then you know the big question that i think has kind of just raised its head in the last two decades I and mean, it's not brand new but you know the a mallard next to another mallard they're not the same you know some mallards are higher all birds you know some individuals are better quality than the others you know some breed more often some never breed some can carry a lot of fat some can't carry a lot of fat so yeah, it's, it's good to start uh, studying these birds on more of an individual basis rather than just how big that cloud is that, that got off of Unit 1A, you know.
1: Yeah, John Eady shared some insights on that that particular idea, individual heterogeneity across these birds. Whenever we were speaking with him about a wood duck project that he has going, he and his colleagues have had going for a number of years and involving the genetics, identifying individual birds using their genetics, and then they can identify the offspring from individual birds. And it's just an amazing wealth of data that they're dealing with there. And he, he was noting that, yeah, we've we've evolved in, in our thinking. I mean we've always it doesn't take very much for you to stop and think and realize that, okay, there's some differences in these birds, whether it be genetically or, or physically. I mean, we know that, right? But but then I think it's also fair to admit, and this is what John was saying, that for the most part in our management application, we have considered most birds to be fairly uniform, sort of automatons, to use the term that, that John did. But we're now evolving in the way we think about the application of that information. We've always kind of known there was variation, but now we have a we we're able to quantify it a bit better, identify those individuals, measure the measure the variation across individuals in whatever type of body condition or reproductive rate that we want to uh, that that we want to refer to here. And so, it's a really cool time, and not just in waterfowl, but across all wildlife species, all wildlife research and disciplines, in um, you know, in general, for us to be able to to do that. And so. Yeah, that, that's that's a good introduction to kind of the way we think about basic parameters of or basic yeah, parameters that we want to understand about, about waterfowl. But then also there's a lot of other things when we if we roll back the clock and begin to reflect on what we what we didn't know at the time and how people were beginning to use uh, individual markers to collect that data. So and that's maybe this is where we can transition to talk about banding as one of the very first applications of these individual markers to get at some of those uncertainties. So, Chris, take us back to some of the early researchers that began using bands. What were they trying to answer? Whether we were talking about demographic rates, did we know enough at that time, or were we just starting with basics of trying to figure out where these birds were going? What, when did we kind of start out looking at individual birds and, and learning from them?
2: And you want to go all the way back? I yeah. tried to read up a little bit more on Mark Bird stuff. You know, like I saw one cool story, you know, somewhere in Europe that, uh, you know, someone was out walking around where all the storks sit up on top of buildings and make their nests on chimneys and stuff. And there's some spear stuck in the, in the stork, you know, an African spear. And they're like, whoa, you know. Someone recognized it from travels down there, and they're like, wow, look at this. This bird must have come from Africa, you know, something that simple. And then I heard another story of some king with a a falcon, you know, for falconry. You know, that's how the wealthy hunted back in the day and put a band on it, you know, some metal marker around the leg, and it disappeared. And sure enough, someone found the king's bird like 1,400 miles away. You know, something just so simple like that is really similar to what we do. You know, and then uh, some other history I was looking up, too, and stories I've heard before. Yeah, um, Smithsonian Institute, I guess, back at the—right right in the late 1800s, someone marked a bunch of uh, night herons. And, you know, someone encountered one of those markers, you know, a year later, a couple hundred miles away down the eastern coast. But then, uh, you know, things started developing. And, you know, famous guy that a lot of us biologists have heard, you know, uh, Fred Lincoln— you know, Ray's talked about him a lot too, you know, he ran the first version of the bird banding lab, got a lot of things together and kind of standardized, you know, back in the, you know, early 1900s, standardized what we're still using today. And uh, you know, it's pretty much just exploded since probably the 30s, you know, the 1930s. You know, it's kind of fun getting old now. Uh, you know, I've heard a lot of my kids already talking about, you know, mom and dad met each other back in the late 1900s, you know, so got to make sure we uh, scale everything right.
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, another thing, you know, you're bringing up some really neat stuff there before I started talking here. And, um, you know, some of these earlier studies we did with waterfowl, you know, there's a lot of assumptions we have. You know, some of us think that, you know, birds breed every year and all this. And, you know, my current boss, uh, Frank Rower here, you know, both of our uh, outfits, you know, we're limited on money and we're really interested in, you know, keeping more ducks on the landscape and keeping everybody up to their ears and ducks. But we did a lot of different research and I even got pulled into it. You know, I was probably on the tail end of just this basic ecology kind of stuff where we're, we're kind of not really doing that anymore. But what was really neat is a lot of us got exposed to these, uh, just trying to look at where sources of variation came from, um, you know, getting into this heterogeneity, you know, and you probably had a lot of fun with, with Edie on this yeah. one. But one thing that's really cool with birds is we've learned more and more that body size, this individual quality is not heritable, or mm-hmm. at least it's not totally driven by genetics. It's mostly driven by the conditions during growth. Mm. And for the most part, that's from hatch until their wings start growing, you know, their their feathers on their wings. Because by then, most birds, other than swans for waterfowl, you know, their bodies just stop. You know, if they experience really bad growth conditions, they're going to be these stunted little midgets where if it's really good, they're going to turn into these super hens. And what's neat is, is it's not completely driven by genetics, but more by environmental stuff. So here you can have, you know, some of these neat years when you're studying individuals where you can have low quality hens can still produce high quality ducklings. So that's where following these individuals gets really exciting, you know, bringing into this, uh, Uh, evolution type topics as well.
1: Chris, that's interesting because it makes me think about what our, what a lot of our dear research colleagues have discovered with Relative to antler size, you know, it's not just genetics. It's gen- it's an interaction w- between genetics, age, and uh, and then food quality. Right? That's the that's the one one of the things that they've begun to to realize, or maybe have for a number of years. Definitely, genetics plays a role, but just because you have good genetics doesn't mean that a three-year-old buck is going to produce a massive set of antlers. And so that's probably shouldn't be too surprising that we might be able to find something similar to that with uh, with waterfowl or other species of wildlife. And waterfowl don't produce antlers, don't produce those, <laughs> that, that type of ornamentation that changes in size from one year to the next necessarily. But the the, the point remains that most of the things that we see about uh, about Species of, of wildlife, ducks, waterfowl included are not going to be controlled singularly like singularly by, uh, by genetics or, or something else. So that's pretty cool. I appreciate you making that point. So let's go back here, Chris, and, and pick up with the discussion about Frederick Lincoln and his the beginning work with with banding. Um, like I said, you've, you've dealt with this for many years. Have have banded more birds than I ever will. And so I know I know you've thought about this a lot. You're familiar with the research, the history of it. Talk about that. When did what were some of the primary questions? Was that did that start as sort of a hobby? Were there some real research questions behind the work of Fred Lincoln? What was the motivation there? What were some of the first things that we began to realize?
2: I think the biggest, you know, earliest contribution that he definitely fed um, was just the flyaway concept, you know, basic basic maps you know in in north america you know it's mostly four flyways that are going up and down you know and that's been a common theme for a lot of banding projects you know where we look at all kinds of stuff i mean it had to be pretty exciting being a biologist back in the 1700s on old wooden ships and it's like well that looks exactly like the bird i saw way up here i mean can you imagine being some biologist back in the day that spent four years getting to the Arctic and saw an Arctic turn. Yeah. And then he spent four more years going to the Antarctic and then saying, well, that bird looks exactly the same. I got yeah. something like that in the British Museum. And sure enough, it's an Arctic turn, and they saw him at both poles. Yeah, You know, all those movement stuff had to be really neat. So, you know, and, and we're all aware right now, we've got four administrative uh, flyways in North America for waterfowl. And, you know, that's where a lot of this stuff came came from was way back then, and not all species match up to it, but, um, you know, it, it mostly works. Yeah, I think that was some of the biggest contributions back in the day.
1: Yeah, and since then, we have the the type of data that we collect from, from banding, the type of information that we gather, the the parameters, the the demographic rates that we estimate have certainly grown. Our ability to to use that data has expanded. So, talk about that, I guess, Chris, more so than just bands, sort of big picture. This is taking us back to individual markers beyond bands, and we're going to transition here after this into a discussion about banding, the specifics of it, but just big picture, individual markers, what are nowadays, and I guess through time, what are some of the most important pieces of information that we can get from those individuals that we look to get?
2: Oh, and this is the part that's just changing constantly, you know, like your TV, like, you know, things that we used to call VCRs, you know, our smartphones. I mean, this stuff you just can't keep up with. And that's something I've learned as as I've gotten older. I mean, if you stand a, step away for a few years, you know, raising kids or dealing with other job duties you just fall fall out of the current stuff and you're really relying on the pers on the people that have dedicated to these techniques or the young folks that just like programming a vcr back in the day they can learn these skills so fast and this is the part that changes so much you know it you know we're making a lot of maps and looking at simple ratios back in the day you know if you release a hundred birds and ten get shot that that first hunting season and five get shot the second hunting season, you know, people started learning that you could build these simple ratios. But, uh, you know, it's like, well, okay, 10% of them got shot each year. It's like, yeah, but, you know, some of them had to die between each year, you know, these birds aren't mortal. And it wasn't even until the 70s, you know, some of the the first really quantitative, you know, computer-based analyses started going up where you could separate Harvest mortality from things like survival, you know, simple things that led to to Brownie models, you know, which is just simply estimating survival and harvest with a whole bunch of assumptions, which is great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with these analyses at all, but you know, that started morphing. I'm keeping it in the waterfowl context. You know, what about the birds you start recapturing that, you know, a bird already has a band? And it's like, well, that's kind of neat information. You know, that bird survived, didn't get shot. And we encountered it again. So all of a sudden you got another source of data that then you can start using these other, not necessarily ratios, but these, you start looking at stuff like, okay, if we estimate survival from more of a non-game context where you look at how many you recapture versus how many you released last year, you can also estimate a thing we call apparent survival. It's survival, but it's discounted a little bit because they have to come back to the field site to get seen again. You know, so if they don't come back, they enter the sample, it looks like a dead bird. But when you combine these recaptures with hunter kills, because the hunters are out there with guns throughout the universe of, of a mallard, say, you know, where if you're just a bander, you're living at your banding station and you're only capturing that. So here's a big advancement where we could start looking at what proportion of birds are coming back by looking at true survival and apparent survival. Then you start getting into stuff Like when I was in graduate school where we're using these different markers, you know, like we'll talk about in a little bit with neck collars and coated leg bands and stuff where you can encounter these birds throughout the year without having to capture them. And then we did some really neat stuff, nerd words here, uh, things like robust design where within a season we're out there re-encountering birds a bunch so we can do a little capture-recapture in the winter period And then put that into a bigger across-year framework, and you can start estimating, you know, the probability that a bird was even at your area to to recapture. And then you get into the crazy stuff these younger folks and the high-end guys can do now where due to subtraction, you can estimate some parameters, subtract it from other parameters to estimate these other parameters that we don't have any data for, you know, and start expanding things beyond where you're even putting marks in a data book about. You know, it's some of the best data I think we even have out there. I mean, banding data to me just trumps almost any other data we can collect.
1: Yeah, th- I would agree with that, Chris. And it's fascinating to think about how something as simple, quote, as simple as attaching an individual marker, an aluminum leg band to all these to individual birds, thousands of individual birds, uh, originally to try to understand... Where these birds are going, what their travels are, what they're, uh, where they're recovered, how that has evolved, along with all the analytical techniques that you talked about, analytical expertise and statistical, um, just intelligence of of these mathematicians that that we have in our field, to recognize the ability to use. Those encounters to estimate all these other different parameters related to uh, the population dynamics for waterfowl species. You know the uh, so when we let's think about other things, things markers other than bands uh, and the type of data that we get from that. And I guess it goes back to what we were talking about with individual heterogeneity. If you think about and how birds differ from one to the other, and you think about some of the early researchers trying to collect and trying to learn about waterfowl ecology pretty quickly they began to realize the value in monitoring individual birds uh, identifying individual birds for various reasons they needed to understand whatever maybe it was duckling survival there are ways you can you can estimate duckling survival without without individual birds being marked but when you start marking individual birds you get access to so much other uh, information and especially if you look at repeated Activities of those individual birds and seeing how that varies. Let's take renesting as an example. We can't get couldn't get a good handle on renesting unless we had individual birds marked, right?
2: Yeah. Now I think the the biggest thing with a marker, you know, waterfowl aren't the only animals marked at all. You know, just to let people know, you know, people are doing toe clips on salamanders, fin clips on fish, etc. But without an individual marker like a license plate. Um, You know, if you just gave people, like, orange license plates and said, hey, you you know, the orange ones were put on in 1993, great, you know, and we did a 1,000 of those. But when you start, you know, let's say you go 10 years later and there's still a couple orange license plates out there, it's like there's 10 of them left. You know, they're very rare. Did we just see the one that survived now 10 times or is this actually 10 individuals? So that's where we had to stop from that, what we always call cohort marking. You know, where a whole bunch of individuals just get a mark and they all have a commonality and you don't, you know, you know how many were released that event, but in the future, you don't know how many of them are really out there. So that's where people were smart enough to say, okay, we need to give them unique numbers, you know, very identical to a license plate. You know, there's no duplicates out there. You know exactly about that bird. And, you know, that start started helping when the mathematicians came in to make sure those ratios were set up right and you know, you're accounting for how many individuals you are resampling. That's the biggest question. You know, getting the marker out is not a big deal. Everything we deal with is how many of them we ever see again. You know, whether hunters are shooting them, whether you're retrapping it at a nest, you know, all that, uh, all almost all the data we derive is from when you run into that bird again or that marker again.
1: Those individual markers also are used often in in research to study differences in behavior, various types of be- behavior beyond survival, reproduction. I can use my study, uh, my master's research, as an example. We wanted to understand the differences in behaviors of uh, and social groupings of unpaired and paired male mallards during the during the summer. We would not have been able to do that unless we had the ability to mark individual birds, confirm their pair status from re- repeated observations, and you can only get repeated observations of an individual if you can identify that individual by some by some marker and so that type of marking we actually use nasal saddles which we'll talk about later on as well as the radio transmitters to uh, as a way to identify these individual birds and then we can look at how those individuals th- those birds individually but also as as we classified them as as paired and unpaired, how they differed in their behaviors, their social groupings during the breeding season. You can look through the literature for some uh, studies of dominance behavior among paired birds, unpaired birds, and you kind of have to know what bird you're looking at in order to to collect that information so even well beyond the demographic data that we're talking about here survival harvest rates those types of things individual markers are essential for all sorts of other type of of data that we use to understand waterfowl Um, to understand waterfowl what are some what are we missing here chris um, probably missing it leaving something out we'll begin to wrap this particular episode uh, up as an introduction to individual markers but what have we what have we left out here
2: no, I mean, yeah, we can keep going about this forever, and I feel like we're just getting fired up, um, you know. But yeah, these individual-based approaches are just superior, I and mean, it's so much fun. I mean, your examples with you know pair status is just awesome, um, you know. And I'll always be a advocate for you know goose studies. You know, geese are just so much easier to study than a duck. You know, they're big, they're obvious, their nests are easy to find. Um, you know, we've learned so much from those, too. And and the challenge is trying to study, you know, the best systems out there and modify it for the difficult systems out there, you know, getting down to these cryptic birds, you know, cinnamon teal, green wing teal, stuff like that that are way harder to study than a big, obvious mallard, you know. So, yeah, it's basically just the creativity and the folks that came before us scratching their heads and you know, figuring out a good uh, unified approach to a lot of this that, that we get to build off of over time.
1: And whenever the other thing that is necessary about using markers is you have to capture the birds. It's always cool to put your hands on the birds the, it's it's the, the individual itself, the birds themselves, that we find so fascinating. We enjoy studying. We enjoy looking at. So I think that's also, if we're being honest, that's uh, it's one of the reasons why individual marking is intriguing. Uh, you know, sort of on the front end of it, it's a really cool uh, aspect of the of the field work, you get to catch the birds, you get to understand where they are. You get the, I mean, it's incredibly challenging to catch these birds in some instances, but you get to physically hold these amazing birds. And that in itself just brings an entirely different level of of appreciation for the resource. So I know that's, I know you would share that, that interest there, but I think we will wrap up this episode as an introduction to individual marking, how we use it. And we're gonna come back Chris, and we're going to record another episode, maybe two more, because we have a host of things to go through here, the specific type of markers that we use that you've had experience with. And we're going to talk about some of the particular applications of them, um, what type of data we get from them individually, and, and maybe even ask you to, to share some of your, your experiences with, with those, uh, those markers. A lot more to cover here. And happy to have you, Chris, with us. Uh, Thanks for joining us. And we will catch up with you here on the next episode. Thanks a bunch. I look forward to it. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Chris Nicolai, waterfowl scientist for Delta Waterfowl. We're gonna reconnect with him on a subsequent episode and talk more about individual markers of waterfowl and uh, and hope you learn a lot from these discussions. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does getting these episodes out to you. To you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast.